Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, how are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy in Los Angeles. What's happening out there? I hope you're doing okay. Thank you for listening. I have another great show for you today. Don't forget to subscribe to the Other People Podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube, follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. X. And Blue Sky. Whatever it is. I don't know. So my guest today is Eden Lepucky, author of a new novel called Time's Mouth. And so for a lot of times, I would be writing, even though so much scary, fucked up shit was happening in the book, it was a comfort to be in the book. And in 2021, when I finally picked up revising it again, there was a similar sense of like, well, this world is really kind of freaking me out and my kids are back in school but online like lord help me that this book is the special place i can go and time passes the way i want it to pass not how the time is passing in regular life so there definitely was a sense of like the book being the shelter all right that was eden lepucky best-selling author of the new novel time's mouth now available from counterpoint press Time's Mouth is a generational family saga that takes place during the back half of the 20th century and the early aughts in California. It is very much a book that is steeped in Californian history, Californian mythology. It is a novel of place. It is also a time travel novel. It covers a lot of ground. And you are taken as a reader to Santa Cruz, the forests outside of Santa Cruz, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Melrose Avenue of the 1980s. There are stops in Ojai, the desert. You go all over the place in California. Time's Mouth is a sprawling and wild novel about a family and about the ties that bind us to one another across space and time. I had a great talk with Eden Lepucky, who is making her triumphant return to this podcast after almost 12 years. She was my guest all the way back in episode 28, back in 2011. And now here she is publishing 
what I believe is her fourth book and her third novel, something like that. My conversation with Eden Lepucky is coming up in just a couple of minutes. A quick reminder before we get started that I do a weekly email newsletter. It is free. You can sign up at otherppl.com or bradlesty.com. The newsletter is just me letting you know about the latest episodes of the show on a weekly basis. I also share links to things that I have been reading and finding interesting. That is it. It's once a week. So if you want to hear from me in your inbox once a week, go sign up for the newsletter at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. If you would like to join the Other People Patreon community, support this show, help keep it rolling, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. It's a sliding scale. You can get merchandise as you move up the scale, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a book club subscription, all of that stuff over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. So my guest, once again, is Eden Lepucky. Her new novel, Time's Mouth, is available now from Counterpoint Press. Eden's other books include a novella called If You're Not Yet Like Me, and then the novels California and Woman Number 17. Her fiction and nonfiction have appeared all over the place in a variety of publications, including Esquire, The New York Times Magazine, The LA Times, McSweeney's, and elsewhere. I am so pleased to have Eden Lepucky back here on the program as she celebrates the arrival of this new book. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Eden Lepucky, and her new novel, One More Time, is called Time's Mouth. I was like, this is the most like vaginal book. <laughs> it is called Time's Mouth. I mean, I tipped you off. I was just like, because I just feel like there's so much childbirth and menses and bush and like there is a lot of this in this book correct i mean that, yes that... correct correct so and it this is I, I have to feel like knowing that you you know you have three ba- you know three children i believe when you were sort of starting this book you had your youngest was a baby right i took it's taken me so long that it was my daughter my middle child was a baby when i started writing this book she's almost eight okay so where does that put us then that so would be i had 15 2015, yeah. That's when you started. I started it in 2016, early 2016. Is this a longer cycle for you than is typical? Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, I've only written three novels. I guess I've written four. I've published three, written four novels. And I think they usually take me between probably three-year average for the other ones. So this one, I mean, it's coming out seven years after I started it. So definitely longer. But it's also a bigger beast than the other ones. I was so going to say. I do think that when something's taken a long time, it can't. when it's working really well, it can feel like it's been marinating for longer. It's like juicier, richer, more complicated. But at the same time, I want those books that took a long time to not feel like it takes a long time to read them. Right. So my... I want them to feel effortless, even if I'm like, there's no way this is effortless, but it's effortless to read is what I'm kind of after. But I know what you're saying. But I mean, whoever listens to the show, if you haven't read Brad's book, 
be brief and tell them everything. It's brief. It took me took me a decade. It took you a decade. I read. I couldn't stop reading that. I was reading that like while chopping things because I couldn't put it down, and it had a sense of urgency, even though it took you a long time to read it. Yeah. Or a long time to write it, rather. Yeah. So. That's what. Yeah, I'm the same way. I feel like it should be. Like easy reading is hard writing, and the author needs to put the work in. And if it's hard to read, that's not good. I'm trying to avoid that. <laughs> and it's if it's fun, and if it's hard to follow, you know, sometimes oh. it's like there's clarity issues for me sometimes, and I'm like, whoa. Or you know, I can do it, but I'm working too hard to do yeah. it, and that that can get on my nerves. So anyway, kudos to you, and no judgment at all that this book took seven years. That almost that almost sounds short to me. <laughs> uh, Thank and, you. Something that I feel like is a through line in all of your books is the state of California. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm, totally. You're, mytho- you're mythologizing this place. And <laughs> I'm this... part of the problem. <laughs> but, but I mean, I, as a Californian, and I don't know because I'm from the Midwest originally, but have lived here for like 20 some odd years now. Like at what point do I become a local? I, I have no idea if I ever will. But uh, I feel a real affection for California, for all of its ills. And I could feel in your novel a lot of love. I mean, I think you can count yourself as a Californian, though you always have... You're from Indiana, is that correct? And Wisconsin, yeah. And Wisconsin, okay. So you can... You still have to have the transplant footnote. But I think after... If you've spent your adult life here, it's like you're you're in California. But it's a place that's so much... So many people from here are from somewhere else, and they come here because of the myth. They come here because of the myth of the weather, the beauty, the renewal. And so I think we... Ha- People who are born in California have to embrace people who come from outside because that's what it is. I mean, California itself, you know, like the rest of the country, belonged to other people before people came along and killed everybody and said, now it's ours. <laughs> right. To put it bluntly. Um, but yeah, I love I love LA. I love California as a whole, even though it's so problematic, even though so much of the mythology is on shaky ground. But I love that it's kind of my idea of California is also me like puzzling over the cliches of California. Like I'm always doing that. Um, and I think that is the case for anyone who's from somewhere kind of famous, like people who are, you know, native New Yorkers, I think have the same, same issue, same wrestling, same embrace, but like, what are we really? What's the true place? But yeah, I can't, at this point, I really can't imagine writing about anywhere else. Have you ever lived anywhere else? I lived in Ohio for four years to go to college. Oh, right. You went to Oberlin. And I went to, I lived in Iowa for two years to go to graduate school. But otherwise, I've always lived in California. And have you ever thought, after the kind of schooling experiences and you moved back here, have you ever thought to yourself, I need to get out or this is home? This is home. I mean, my entire family lives, my, you know, my extended family, my parents are from New Jersey. So I have family on the East Coast, but my, all my siblings and my parents, we all live in California. And I have children who were born here, so it doesn't really make sense to leave. Why would I go? I don't really imagine there's anywhere that would feel right in the same way. And now I own property, so I'm stuck here. (laughs) Right, right. Well, and the weather is hard to give up. I mean, really, I know know it's cliche to talk about, but it is. Like that, I think about that because I grew up in places where, you know, the winters are hard and 
not really redeeming, you know, redeemable. It's just like cold and shitty. <laughs> you know, what's funny is I, because I'm from LA and my kids are from LA, we, I still have a pretty romantic notion of snow and winter, even though I lived in Ohio and Iowa, I wasn't there long enough to have it be this burdensome yearly occurrence. I mean, my birthday's in February and so many people are like, oh, I hate February. And that's because they're from a place that just is dreary for the whole month. But my kids are still upset that it doesn't snow where we are. You ever go um, up into, you ever take them up into the mountains? Uh, know, I don't, I need like tire chains. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but my husband's from upstate New York. So he is always like, the weather here is gorgeous. It's so perfect. And he's always like, feel that breeze, people. It's so beautiful. And nobody's listening to him because we're all sort of used to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think I still have that romance with like, like when you're deep in January and February, and it's like 70 degrees and beautiful here. I that never gets old for me. And some people are like, well, what about the seasons and all that? I'm like, I've had them. I had seasons. I also, know when to... there are seasons in LA. Okay. Yeah. There's we've got like our gray early late spring early summer. We got jacarandas at that time. We have the heat of September and October. You know, I feel like December air feels very different than August air. Um, so we have these very subtle changes in the landscape. They're just not the hegemonic seasons of the Northeast, okay? That's right. That's right. <laughs> I like that defense. And it is true. And you do, as you live here, learn to like track those things and even look forward to them. I mean, there are, like I was just thinking about Halloween for some reason, like end of October. I don't know why it was on my brain, but it's like those winds... The, the weather's are blowing. Yeah, it's like that time of year, but it's still kind of hot, but the air yeah. is getting cold. It's nice. So anyway, you are mythologizing uh, a big swath of California history and places in California in this novel. And I'm going to try to track a few of them. If I leave anything out, you know, feel free to interject. But Okay. We have uh, one of the main characters of the book, uh, Ursa, whose name is Sharon, right? I have that right. She was born Sharon, and then she renames herself Ursa. Which is tracking strongly with like the California Uh mythology, like, uh, you know, the rules of California mythology. You have to change your name to something like Ursa as soon as you move To something annoying. (laughs) (laughs) And so we have her, but she moves to San Francisco in what 60s it's like countercultures uh, like 70. mid fi- mid 50s okay so beat san francisco yes and she then ends up meeting some people which by the way it's very easy for me to romanticize san francisco at mid century i mean how, me too who how can't, cheap I mean... it was so cheap to live comparatively speaking it wasn't overrun at that point with all this tech money there was something kind of innocent and small townish almost yeah, about it. Beautiful, those buildings and all the be- yeah. There's some cool stuff happening in San Francisco in the fifties. So that's when Sharon shows up, and she kind of falls in with what some beatnik, countercultury type people. One of whom invites her down to the Santa Cruz Mountains, where mm-hmm. she shares a home with her older husband. It's like mm-hmm. a big home. Yeah, it's a big mansion in the woods outside of a town that is real, Ben Lomond, but it's, you know, beyond that. It's kind of unincorporated, just okay. forests, and it's a big old Victorian mansion. How did this, how did you land on this? How did you land on Ben Lomond, which I had never heard of? I thought it was made up, and then I was like, this is too specific. <laughs> ben, and I'm on- ben, ben Lo- I've been to Ben Lomond twice in my life for like 
three hours each time. They It's where the Henry Cowell Redwood Loop is. It's like a little, I think it's probably only like half a mile at the most, a little walking trail that you can do with, if you have young children, you would go there. If you go to Santa Cruz, you go to the pier, you go to Ben Lomond to do this trail. So I've been there twice. And I, the moment I stepped into that little town with its little general store and, you know, there are still hippies in Santa Cruz. Oh, yeah. It just has, a, there's no other way to describe it, but it has a vibe. It has like, this is an interesting place. And because I'm from LA and I'm not an outdoorsy person, being around any kind of tree is sort of like stirring. <laughs> and I was like, I'm always, I'm always going to, I'm going to write about this. I have to write about it. How I came up with the mansion, I have no idea. I really don't even remember. It just was there. Okay. Because like, I want to say, I mean, this is a, a very cursory Google search, like while I'm reading, but there's a castle in Ben Lomond, isn't there? Or is this, a, is, there might be a Ben Lomond in Scotland and I there's could There's a be... Ben Lomond in Scotland, yeah. Okay. I know that, but only after I started writing about it, I knew that. Okay. But there's not like some building in Ben Lomond, California that you were modeling this mansion on. Like it was... No, I wasn't. I mean, you might be right and there might be something and people who are from the area are probably screaming at the podcast right now, <laughs> but not that I recall. By the way, huge listenership for this show in Ben Lomond, California. I'm not, you are, you have thousands and thousands of listeners like from Uruguay and all over the place. So there's probably Ben Lomond acolytes there. There are. Shout out to my listeners in Ben Lomond. So how much explore, uh, like exploration, I, I, I suppose as a native Californian who spent many years living here, you've seen a good bit of the state, which is another one of the things that I love about this place is you really don't need, don't need to leave California all that often to see all sorts of different stuff like desert, mountains, skiing, Lake Tahoe, Yosemite, Santa Cruz, San Francisco. You know what I'm saying? Like it's got a lot going on and I'm wondering how much of the state you've explored. Sadly, not as much as I want to or should you know, I've done a lot of Southern California, San Diego, Orange County. I've done Santa Cruz quite a bit because my best friend went to college there. So I went up there once a year for four years, and then I've been back with my kids. Obviously, I lived in the Bay Area for four years, so I've seen quite a bit of the Bay Area. I haven't really been up north. I've been to Yosemite as a child, but I, ha like, I haven't been to Eureka or any of the places right up near the border, and I'm dying to go up there. But again, it's so big that you could never see certain parts of it. And my my family wasn't, growing up, it wasn't like we were doing road trips around California. I don't know if that's because I have a boring family or <laughs> we're, yeah. we're not from California, but, you know, so we didn't do that kind of stuff. So I I haven't seen that much of it, I yeah. think. It's I haven't been, I have not, I have not been to Yosemite. I have not been to Lake Tahoe. I just went to Lake Tahoe for the you first did. time. How was it? It's beautiful. I was there teaching at a conference at Olympic Valley, which used to be called Squaw Valley for those people who know skiing. So in oh, the summer, right. there's a great conference there called Community of Writers. And I've taught there a couple times before. I've never been to Lake Tahoe, but I finally got to go and walk around and swim in a, the Truckee River nearby. It was beautiful. It was good. Yeah. But I'm okay. not, a, you know, I'm not outdoorsy. As I said, my family isn't. So I think things like Lake Tahoe or any of like the ski areas you might do if you are from a family that does outdoor sporty things. We you didn't don't camp. Do. No. I just went camping with my son for a night in Malibu, like in the Malibu Creek mountainy area. Will it you ever hot. do it again? 
I mean, yeah, maybe. It was hot as shit in that tent. Like the like the oh. ground, the ground was still baking after dark. You know oh, what I'm God. saying? So like you're lying down and I'm just like, I'm cooking. You're basically cooking inside the tent. So there was a lot of me. Thank God I had cell service. I was just like in the tent, like reading on my phone till three in the morning. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. See, I won't do it. Yeah. It's different. I mean, I did a lot of camping in my youth, not with my family, but on my own. And kind of thought like I'm a camper now, but really I haven't done much. It's let's be honest, it's nice to have a hot shower and it's nice to like in a have bed in a bathroom. <laughs> yes. So you're not into it at all. No, well, I wasn't raised that way. Half of my family is Jewish. My mom convert my my stepfather's Jewish and my mother is a converted Jewish person. And my two siblings, my half siblings are Jewish. I'm saying all the, I'm saying Jewish like 12 times, but that's to say that my brother who's Jewish is like, oh no, Jews don't camp, which I have seen rejected by many Jewish people who love camping, but I just think it's really funny. So now anytime someone's like, do you camp? In my head, I'm like, oh, Jews don't camp, but I'm not Jewish. So I don't have that excuse, but we never went camping. I went twice as with a friend when I was a kid. It was wonderful during the day, horrible at night. I heard a bird, a, a bird, a bear growling when I, I woke up in the middle of the night, had to pee, heard a bear growling, peed in my sleeping bag because I thought it would just be a little bit, but it was actually a ton, had to wake up my friend's dad <laughs> to tell him of this horrible thing. Wow. And that's the last time I ever went camping. I was going to say, no wonder you don't camp. This sounds yeah, like a tra- traumatic yeah. experience. And when California came out, people kept being like, oh my God, you must be like really like back to the lander, whatever, off the grid. I was like, I'm glad I fooled you because this person does not go anywhere without a w- indoor plumbing. <laughs> well, okay. So Ben Lomond, just to Back assert- to the topic. Yeah, back to the topic at hand. Ben Lomond is w- one major setting and really is the heart of the mystical narrative thread of this book. This mansion in Northern California near Santa Cruz is where Sharon becomes Ursa, right? Mm-hmm. And winds up forming a cult. Is that a fair assessment? I think so. I mean, is it a cult? Is it? I mean, maybe every cult for the most part until legal things happen, everyone's like, is this a cult? She, I think nobody is trying to leave until certain points in the book, but it's not as if she's practicing like a really intense manipulation, like I will destroy you if you leave. But they're all under her sway and she becomes kind of a despotic ruler of them. But they're complicit in the behavior. But it's also, they're not trying to grow and grow and grow, but she does get all of these women who are called the mamas to come and live there. And Ursa can travel in time to her past. And when people watch her, they feel all these feelings of euphoria like a drug. And so they want to be around her. They want that once a month jolt of euphoria that happens when she travels back in time in front of them. And so they're all under her sway. But I didn't, to be honest, I didn't set out to write a cult novel. It was, that was not the central conceit of the book. I don't even know if looking back, if that's what my intention was. It was just Ursa has this power and the women are going to come to her. But maybe that's because I was so with her that I didn't really realize that's what she was doing. If that makes sense? Yeah. Well, and it's also that the other, I mean, cult is a word loosely applied in my reading of the book. Another word that comes to mind is witchy. 
There's something witchy. It's a witchy yeah, it's novel. It's definitely witchy. They have, you know, they have rituals. They have ways. They have separate phrases that they use. They're all like vibing on being women together. Yeah, and she's kind of a witch. Okay, so Ursa has this, and this is like where the novel becomes fantastical. And I want to say one of the reviews that I read described this book as down to earth and out to lunch, <laughs> which is to say that it is grounded in real human stuff and these characters are flesh and bone, and yet there is a magical element to this book. There's a time travel novel. It's pretty wacky. It's pretty wacky, and, and in a California way, too, because it's kind of like new age wacky. This woman can travel in time. She lives in this mansion with all these women who we should add, just for the sake of clarity, tend to come to this house like in states of like a personal difficulty or like they're pregnant, they're on their own, they give birth, they sort of raise these babies together. It's like a house of women raising children together in the absence yeah. of men. And they only really remove themselves from society because society has hurt them or wounded them or treated them badly. So they all need someone to protect them and care for them. And Ursa is that person, although she's not exactly the most comforting figure. Yeah. you know. On a side note, I just have to say, one time I told my oldest that I couldn't afford something and he was like, well, if your book is as down to earth and out to lunch as they say, you would be able to afford it. <laughs> and I was like, you know, that is so good. I almost want to buy this thing for you. I don't even remember what the thing was, but it's right. pretty good. Pretty good author's child thing to say. He's a, it's a boy, right? It's a boy. He's a boy. He's reading reviews. Well, when I get a good review, I like repeat it at dinner time, like over and over again. <laughs> and they hate me, but I have to talk about it. Of course. Of course. <laughs> Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So, so here's the question for you. Yes. And this always fascinates me when somebody's working in this mode where things get kind of supernatural. It's like, where did it come from? Like where, can you trace the creative point of origin for this Ursa character and where she comes from within you and this decision to suddenly have her be able to like tunnel down through time and revisit certain points of uh, her existence? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, I want to say I tend to read a lot of realism. That's probably the thing I like to read the most, although I love like crime novels, fantasy, all that stuff. So the fact that I've written this book is really strange to me, but I think that also means that it kind of balances this supernatural, wacky, 
tunneling through time stuff with everything that I wanted to make it feel as real as possible. So I think maybe that's why there is so much like body stuff in it because I wanted to really like ground it in an everyday reality. So you weren't, so I myself wasn't put off by the completely bananas premise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. The other thing is, let's see, I have all, I think most people are kind of obsessed with the idea that you can't go back in time, that you can't visit specific moments in your life. And I felt, feel this more acutely now that I'm a parent, but I think anybody could feel it. But this idea of like not being able to hold your child the fir- for the first moment ever again, or that moment when your child goes from newborn to infant, like the newborn period is so rough and it's, you're really, you're just kind of like deranged for a little while. But once the baby goes from like that wormy look to that more solid thing, immediately you're like, oh, it's over. That, yeah. that, that like week or two weeks or four weeks, it's gone. Yeah. And so I just have always wished that. And like, I'll spend time closing my eyes, going back in time to college. Like I loved college and I miss it in this way that I know I can never recreate it. And that's so tragic, but also what made it so great. So I think I've always had the wish fulfillment fantasy to do this. Um, so that was one of the first inspirations for the book was like, what if you could? What if somebody could do this? Originally, the book was from the started in the perspective of a, Ursa's granddaughter, Opal's mother, who cannot time travel and doesn't even know that the people that she grew up with could do it. She like lived in a state of ignorance. So I started it from a totally different place, which is interesting looking back on it now. I think because I didn't yet understand exactly how I was going to write the time travel. And so I needed to be more in the book before I got to the characters who had the gift. So I could figure out how the hell I was going to write. Like, okay, so what's the language that I use for somebody when they close their eyes and they're in the past? Like, what are the actual similes? And I, I have no answer except I just use my intuition and just kind of leaned into how weird it would be where it's like, all right, she slipped into the membrane. Okay, it was Yoki in there. Like I just tried to make it feel like how I imagine it might feel rather than just having it be like, clap your hands and be there. It had to, the traveling itself had to feel like something. Like a physical process. Yeah. And like a human process. Yes. Right? Exactly. You know, it's interesting as you're talking, I'm thinking of a conversation I, I had with somebody not too long ago. Can't remember who it was. I'm blanking totally. Was it on the air or was it a private conversation? No, it was like for the show, oh. I want to say. Although I could be wrong. I, that I just remember. That person in Ben Lomond is about to scream again because they're going to remember. <laughs> I know. But I was talking about time travel novels and how there have been, or the person had written a time travel novel. God, what was it? And the point was that that maybe there were more time travel novels happening because of the pandemic. Though I don't think this necessarily applies to yours because it was begun like many years before the pandemic. But I'm wondering, like, I'm sure part of this book at least touched the pandemic, no? Or did you finish it? I mean, it touched, it it started with, it started with Hillary Clinton and ended with the pandemic. I mean, like it covered it all. Oh yeah. I was texting with Emma Straub, like right after, like she announced her book or something or I announced mine and she was like, oh, I'm working on a time travel book. And I was like, ha ha, get in the time machine and never do it because it's a pain in the ass. And she was like, oh, mine's done. (laughs) And I was like, it's done. I've been working on mine for years. But she said, I think it was the pandemic that caused all these time travel books. She said the same thing because of our experience with time was just utterly warped, especially I think if you were someone who was 
privileged enough to stay have to stay home all the time where suddenly these days felt so long and you didn't know how to chart change and that really did I think mess up our sense of time like 2020 feels like it was six years um because I started my book in 2016 it doesn't really have that element I don't think like I don't that's obviously not what inspired it and I don't think I worked on the book at all in 2020 it was I was, let's just say I was nicely between drafts in 2020. Um, But there is actually a lot of like Trump stuff in it. Not that you would feel it, but I think it was, some of that was metabolized fictionally. There's this scene where Cherry, who is, she runs away from the cold, has a baby. Her baby's having these weird episodes she doesn't know what's going on. The baby's like freezing up. It's scary. She feels, it feels really weird in the room. The baby has one of those episodes as a, at a vintage clothing store on Melrose. This is 1981. <laughs> um, and that scene of the vintage clothing store was written the day after Donald Trump won the election. And it's been revised, obviously, but there's a sentence in it that's something like what she's describing how it felt when her daughter has this intense episode and she says something like um it's like one thing being ripped out from another thing or there's some description of like you can't go back to the way it was <laughs> and that is like a direct me trying to process what had just happened and so for a lot of times I would be writing even though so much scary fucked up shit was happening in the book it was a comfort to be in the book and in 2021 when I finally picked up revising it again there was a similar sense of like, well, this world is really kind of freaking me out and my kids are back in school, but online, like Lord help me, that this book is the special place I can go and time passes the way I want it to pass, not how the time is passing in regular life. So there definitely was a sense of like the book being the shelter yeah, for me. I'm, imp- I'm impressed that you could write the day after the Donald Trump... <laughs> I know, me too. I mean, maybe it was a couple days, but I yeah. remember it was very raw. Yeah, I was a, I was a mess after that. That really fu- that really shocked me. I think it shocked a lot of people. It feels like we're we were so naive. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I think I, what I recall is that I was like really messed up. Maybe it was even a week later. It was very quickly after though, and I was really messed up. And I was like, just sit down and write the scene, like be in the scene. And I somehow made it work and it made me feel better because for a little while I somehow locked into the work and I wasn't thinking about anything else. Yeah. I can, I can see that too. Like just as an escape, you know, from mm-hmm. reality, if exactly. you can, especially for a book like this, that does take you back in time to when things were simpler. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, like a Melrose. I mean, did you, did you grow up? I mean, for those of, uh, you know, those listening who are not Los Angelinos, like Melrose Avenue, vintage clothing store. There is a stretch of Melrose Avenue that is populated by all sorts of different stores. It's very popular with like teenage girls, I feel like. Was yeah, that the- and it's changed a lot. When I So I did, I grew up on the street that's in the book, Edinburgh. I just didn't change the name. And that's a couple blocks uh, west of Fairfax, right off Melrose. And in the book, two of the kids from this cult in Santa Cruz escape in 1980 to LA because one of them is pregnant. And so there's a whole 80 section of the book. But I grew up right there. And when I was a kid, it was all like punk squatting and boutiques, record stores. And then it over time became like, you know, there's a lot of like trashy boutiques now. 
now I'm not really sure what Melrose is, but there are a lot. And now there's the flea market there. So there's a lot of like youngins around. You mean at Fairfax High? Yeah. Yeah. I've been to that flea market years ago. It's not bad. You know, and I feel like there's been violence too. Somebody got shot not too long ago on Melrose. I mean, people can get shot anywhere these days, but it just, you know, that happened right there. So it's kind of gritty, but it's also, I don't know, my daughter's becoming a teenager. I'm sure she's going to log some time there. (laughs) When I was in first grade, I was with my friend Lana. My friend Lana had come over and I guess I told my dad that we were going on Melrose, but he didn't hear me or whatever. So we're like, we just went on Melrose and we're like shopping. My dad comes running up. He's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I was like, dad, we're shopping. And he was like, I'm so worried. What the hell are you doing on Melrose? You're all by yourself. I was five years old. Wow. Because I was a year younger. I started kindergarten at four for no discernible reason. But it's so funny to think back on it now because I have the memory of being like, Dad, what's the big deal? We're just shopping. And then I realized we were in first grade just like going in and out of the boutiques, just hanging out. Yeah. But it was different era. I feel like, I mean, I don't know. Living in a city, it's different. But when we were kids, my age, I mean, I'm older than you are, I think. But, I, you know, I I had a lot of freedom to like roam the neighborhood. Granted, I was- Brad, you should give your kids that freedom now. <laughs> I don't know if they would even take it's, it. <laughs> that's true. That, but the, as, statistically, the world is safer than it is than it was in nineteen, you know, late seventies, early eighties, mid eighties. So should I be letting my kids just like roam the neighborhood in L.A.? It feels like that. I mean, because I see like authentically crazy people on the regular, like. <laughs> Like, you know, but it's true too. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want any liabilities. I don't want any litigation for me telling you to do that. <laughs> I mean, and it's also not fair because I live in a debt on a dead end Canyon Street and my kids like, quote unquote, roam the neighborhood. But my fear is they're going to get like eaten by a f- coyote. Right. Because there's just nobody around to wow. be fearful of. That's nice, though. You have a little distance from like the city craziness. It's true. It is nice. Although, you know, I let my my younger one, my older one rather, he's 12, after school, he walks with his friends to the library. They go over to Walt. One time I picked him up and he was like, we had the best time. We found a shopping cart and I got in it and we were, we got candy and we got in the shopping cart and my friends were just like pushing me around the neighborhood and like pushing it so fast that they let go and it just like rode down the sidewalk. (laughs) And I was like, don't do that. But I was also like, that's great. Be free. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, I remember when I was a kid, I was on like four wheelers and stuff when I was in fourth and fifth grade, going like 40 miles an hour off jumps and like just no helmet, like just crazy. It's nuts. I know. Yeah. But and we I live met, to tell the tale. We live to tell the tale. So let's get into the generational. I mean, we touched upon San Francisco and the Beatnik era. We then get to Ben Lomond outside of Santa Cruz and this mansion and this like maybe cult slash. Coven, I don't know what you call it. And yeah. then we have uh, Ursa's son, Ray, and a girl named Cherry falling in love. Ray goes off to college. He goes to UC Santa Cruz, right? Mm-hmm. Or it's UC yeah, Santa Cruz. He goes to Santa Cruz. Yeah. And falls in love with Cherry. They run away together and have a baby together in Los Angeles. Mm hmm. And that's where we get to like Edinburgh and this and like the this Melrose '80s, yeah. Melrose '80s, and the baby is is named Opal, and I mean I don't know I don't want to spoil too much, but feels central to uh, talking about the book. You know, Opal has the gift, 
Like she, she has the gift. She doesn't know it, but she has the gift. She finds. I mean, it's on the back of the book. They gave a lot away. So, okay. yeah, but I don't and, think you can. I could get you can get to that point and then stop because there's so much other stuff, you know, in a book. But yeah. she realizes she has the gift, but she doesn't know anything about her grandmother or her grandmother's gift. Yeah. So and she has the gift in '90s LA. I get to write '90s LA too, which was my favorite LA to write about. Why? Because I I gave Opal my birthday. I put her on my street. I put her in my high school. So talk about like traveling back in time. It was a lot of memory excavation for me to write her, to put her in my childhood bedroom, to write about Melrose and that era. Even like late 90s LA is like already disappeared. I mean, already it's like 23 years ago, late 90s, early aughts. But, you know, certain bars, certain feelings of being an Echo Park in that time, is they're just different. It's just different. So that was really just fun to go back and describe it. It really has changed. I mean, I, that's when I moved here. It's definitely changed a lot since then. I guess any place changes a lot, though maybe some places more than others. I think L.A. is particularly unsentimental. And yeah. so oftentimes I'll drive by, I'll be like, that was something else. And then I'll be like, I have no idea what it was. I don't remember. <laughs> and now I'll, I have forgotten forever. There are so few so few places was. in L.A. that are, like, institutional, like restaurants in particular. Like, I feel like there was a period in my youth, like my 20s, where I went out to dinner a lot. It's like dating my wife. We had friends. We were all young and single. You know, you go out more. And, like, now we're I'm, young like, and beautiful and eating out. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Just dining out, like, you know. And all the restaurants I used to eat at are gone is the point with, like, yeah. very few exceptions. Like, it just turns over. and I know. It's the, sort of ruthless. Yeah. But I also kind of like the lack of sentimentality. I'm kind of unsentimental about that. Like, I don't, I don't cling to photographs. I'm, I'm not sentimental. I mean, maybe in certain moments I am. But I think, like, as a principle, it's like, yeah, what do you expect? This happens to everybody onward. Like I, death. We're marching toward death. <laughs> I mean, it. there are certain restaurants that I go to with my family and like like El Coyote is a Mexican restaurant beloved by white people. It's not a good restaurant. <laughs> it's not. But you know what? If anyone is going to come at me about El Coyote, like it's one of my favorite restaurants. They have great great margaritas and I still have the same order that I had since I was like five, which is two chicken tacos on a hard shell, which is the most childish order. <laughs> and I will never change it. And now I see they've added like street tacos to the menu. I'm like, what is this sort of trying to be authentic situation uh-huh. with El Coyote. But it's all to say that there are certain places that are very special to me. You know, Cantor's being another one. Both of these restaurants are in the area that I grew up in. Right. And if they were to close, I would feel just bereft and I would grieve them. Um, but there's other restaurants like you that I went to through high school, through my 20s that are just not there anymore. And it fits with LA. I mean, LA wants to be forever the new shiny thing. And there's you know, but there's so many things around LA that are just keeping that from happening. You know, there's like, there's, there's the new restaurant and then there's all kinds of unhoused people around. There's fires, there's coyotes walking down the boulevard. There's just sort of a madness despite our like intense need to keep it perfect and spotless. Yeah. Madness is a good word. And, uh, I'm thinking back, man, my first LA experience, I had an internship like just when I was out of college in the late 90s and it was on Beverly and I used to walk to Cantor's for lunch every day. I didn't really know LA, but I went to Cantor's for lunch. I have no idea why. And what, then I went what, were you, what was your internship? 
I was interning for uh, one of the producers of Pulp Fiction. It was very cool at the time. It was cool. Yeah, and uh, I was interning. It was right when Scream came out, and that oh, production yeah. company did that, and then Goodwill Hunting. And I mean, it was just like it was. It was a a production company that was owned by Miramax. So, you know, <laughs> tells you all you need to know. Tells you all you need to know. But I was just a gopher and. My boss would be like, go to Swingers and get me a Cobb salad. I was going to say, why didn't you go to Swingers? I That's did. Like the place I, of the era. I was going to, well, it's still there. Swingers is still there. Oh, and, I know. I, I know how I know that is that a few years ago, I got in a screaming fight with my father on Christmas Day. And we, <laughs> I took my whole family and threw all the presents in the car and we went and had Christmas dinner at Swingers. Oh, bless you. And I was like, home again, home again. <laughs> ah, Merry Christmas. <laughs> But you're Jewish, right? I mean, it doesn't even matter. Well, not my dad isn't. <laughs> oh, he's not. Okay. <laughs> where Where are you spiritually as a Los Angelino? I feel like you would be kind of without any kind of. I'm, unless you're... I'm, I'm atheist. I'm an atheist. I'm an. You know what? I'm an atheist without really any skin in the game. If you, I just don't. It sounds horrible, but I don't really care. Whatever you want to do, whatever is fine. And I don't have any like spiritual questioning. I'm not agnostic because I'm not always unsure about it. I'm just like, I don't think anything's out there. Um, but my mom is Jewish. My dad is a, you know, reform. he was raised Catholic and now he's Mr. You know, Mr. Astrologer celebrates Christmas. Okay. Speaking of Mr. Astrologer, <laughs> this is a nice, <laughs> nice moment. Segue. Yeah, I was going to say, this is a nice moment to segue into the Ray character, who I, I think is, is a wonderful character. Uh, I, I like the fact that he's a good dad. He's a really good dad to uh, Opal in the absence of her mother. I'm sorry. I just, you know, I I just said that. I don't know. I hope I didn't spoil too much, but he raises her. Mm -hmm. And it's very very rare these days where there's a male character who's like a good dad and just like a good guy doing the difficult thing the right way or trying his best, you know. And uh, would you care to comment on that? Like, was that something you did? Like, did you notice that in the way that maybe I did, like as you were writing it or? I was trying to rehabilitate the white man. (laughs) (laughs) Your image really needs some help. It's really in in peril. Um, Listen, I, I think it is so much of it is deserved and I'm, you know, I'm happy to see the critique, but it does get like, like it's emotionally, every time I read a book, I'm like, oh, here we go. Like an awful, bad man. Yeah. Bad man. Just another shitty guy. You know, I didn't intend to set out to write him as like a good guy, you know, it wasn't, that wasn't my first impulse. It wasn't my intention to write him as a bad father, but I was raised by two wonderful parents. My mom, she wants everyone to know that I did not abandon her. She's a great mom. Or she For did not abandon reason, you. For whatever reason, she didn't, I mean, sorry, she, I abandoned her, but she, <laughs> she didn't abandon me. Right. She, but I, I was also raised by my dad and my parents are divorced and I spent half the time with my mom and half the time with my dad. And for a lot of the formative years, my sisters, my older sisters are my father's kids, but they were living with my mom for a whole other set of complicated things. My dad and I had always had a really special connection and got along. And so I was like an only child at his house. So we had this kind of bond that I, my sisters did not have with him. And I had always wanted to write about Wilhelm Reich, who was a follower of Freud and kind of was the grant, the father of like somatic therapy that my dad is into. And my dad is a real 
character himself. Like he's not in the book because he would be kind of impossible to write. He is was raised in New Jersey. He's a location manager like Ray. He was a microfiche salesman like Ray. But my dad also was single for most of my life and kind of like a ladies' man. He's, you know, how many times my friends have come up to me and being like, nobody's told you this before, but your dad is fucking hot. You know, that happened to me so many times in my life that like, he's just like a, he's a huge ego. He's really charming. He's the most sentimental person I know. And he like, like take a bullet for me. And, but I couldn't write him. We have too complicated of a relationship. Like we had that fight on Christmas. That's not in the book. Right. (laughs) Next book. But I did want to write about a good parent. Like I always have bad parents in my books and I think I'm a good parent. I'm doing the best I can, I should say. And I had good parents and I thought it would be interesting to show how somebody could come from a damaged upbringing and not damage their child or damage them in the ways they don't mean to, in the ways that all parents do. You know, you're, I always say like, my kids are going to be in therapy no matter how hard I try. They're going to have something I'm doing is not, I'm not doing it right. But they know that I love them. They know that I'm there for them. And they know that I'm trying my best. And I think Opal in the book knows that about Ray. And, you know, Ray did not have an easy go of it. He was raised by a cult of women in the woods who time traveled. He didn't know they were time traveling. He just knew that they were rejecting him and hiding in a room. And he was sort of left to raise himself and had to run away to become a normal person. Um, So he's dealing with all that. And yet he really loves Opal. And I did like writing that. Um, It was hard to write, though. My editor would push me to write nicer scenes. Like I would have them be a little spar. I'd have them have a little bit more anger. And my editor was like, why not have this be a relationship in the book that is beautiful, that despite its flaws, is clearly a loving, healthy relationship for all its weird, unhealthy qualities too. And I'm happy he did that. I think that that made the book better and it made you care a lot more. That's Um, what I was going to say. It's like the heart of the book. Yeah. It's the the heart of the book. And I think that if if like Ray's childhood hadn't been so unorthodox and difficult and feral, you know, that's like a word that comes to mind, then maybe, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be necessary to have that loving relationship between Ray and Opal, but I think they counterbalance one another. And I like that too. Like, because, you know, on paper, this is a guy who should not be a good father or should not know how to father Mm -hmm. a child, much less a daughter. You know what I'm saying? It seems like he would, he would be the one that if you looked on paper, you'd be like, yeah, he's going to fuck this up, but he doesn't. He doesn't. And I will say that Ursa, his mother, she really does fuck it up. She doesn't do a good job. But I think also, this you can also say that she did love him. She didn't love him the right way, but she did love him. And I think that some of that closeness got in the water somehow. So years ago on this show, I talked with, you know, Mira Gonzalez. She's a poet. No, I Los, An- Los Angelino. Yeah, but she's a buddy of mine and uh, significantly younger than I am. I mean, I met Mira when she was like 18 years old uh, at a reading, but super funny uh, person. She grew up in Venice Beach. And years ago, I did an April Fool's episode on this show because the day of the release of the show was April April 1st. So I was awesome. like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fuck with everybody. And I, I interviewed Mira's mom, whose name is Laura. And then I posted the episode as an interview with Michiko Kakatani. <laughs> and Mira's mom is married to, oh God, what's his name? He's a bass player for like Black Flag. 
Okay. I mean, she's just like, she's got hair down to her waist yeah. and she's just like Venice Beach, 100%, you know, yeah. and like talking to her about her childhood, but talking to her as if she were Michiko Kakatani. And I fooled a lot of people, which I'm very proud of. <laughs> and I think Michiko, like, I want to say we tagged her on social media and she, I'm sure she listened. I don't think she likes that, that I did that, <laughs> but it was a joke in good humor, you know? Uh-huh. And anyway, the childhood stories as I'm recalling them, it has been a minute since I, you know, had this conversation. But one thing that she said to me that has always stuck with me about parenthood is, you know, she had kind of an unorthodox bohemian parent situation. And then she's raising her kids and this house in Venice and they're sort of bohemian themselves. And she's like, look, I'm doing like a 3% better job at parenting than my parents did. And hopefully my kids will do like 3% better than I did, <laughs> like as an evolution. Like I think modest goals, right? Modest you know, goals. You, you're there for your kids. They know that you love them. You're trying your best. You're not like hopefully like tyrannical or like super fucked up all the time or something like overtly problematic. You know what I'm saying? And you do your best, you do your and, best. Co- and you still fuck it up. <laughs> still drunk. I mean, that's why I bristle a lot of the literature right now about parenting because it's so much about undoing the harm that you were done as a child. And this is not the harm as in you were abused as a child. This is sort of like everyday mundane ways that parents fail their child- children and this idea that we're going to do it differently. We're going to speak to our kids differently. And I, I'm not to, to say that that's not valiant. And that we shouldn't always be trying to be better or think about the ways we were raised and not want to do that too. But I also think it's a falsehood. You know, progress is not linear and that we might be doing some things better, but there's probably something else we're not doing that's, you know, something else that we're doing that is not great. And so maybe that's just to let myself off the hook and to not get too stressed out about it. But I'm like, I don't even know the ways that I'm messing up my kids. Yeah. But I do, you know what? I do know the ways that I'm loving them. And I do know the ways that I, you know, it's not often, but there's a few times in my life where I'm like, oh, I nailed it. Like my kid asked me this question and I gave him the right answer. Or I could have responded this way to them and I, I responded in another way. And I could tell that that was good. It doesn't happen all the time, but when it does, I definitely try to let myself see that because it's such an unrelenting and difficult and beautiful, special, difficult relationship. It's intense. It's I intense. Try to, that's the word. I think I try to like just stay quiet. <laughs> like it's like I always err on the side. I mean, you got to talk to your kids, obviously. Communication is really important. But like pontificating, rulemaking, explaining life to them, I don't fucking know. <laughs> you know, I don't. Look at me. <laughs> I mean, I don't have the answers and I think that's okay. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes there can be this feeling within me where, you know, as a parent, you're raising your kids. It's like, yeah, I've got to tell them what to do. Right. You know, like just like as a natural reflex, Mm -hmm. I think I'm trying to temper that. Like, no, you don't like, it's okay to just sort of, we're here. I don't know what's going on either. Yeah. (laughs) You're welcome. Find their way, but so hard. I don't know. Yeah. 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 So we have Ray, we have Opal, we have LA in the nineties. And then you mentioned earlier, Wilhelm Reich, Mm-hmm. who was this kind of like what post-Freudian therapist. Yeah, he actually like was Freud's student or mentee. And then they went their separate ways because they kind of had a schism in terms of how they thought about mental illness. Whereas Freud is very much about the family system, you know, tell me about your relationship with your mother. 
Reich thought that was important, but also thought it was important to talk about social structures and like overall class oppression or gender oppression, things like that, which are is, you know, intersectionality, which was not a word then, but he, that was of interest to him. And he is kind of a, he has so many, what's, what's frustrating is he had a lot of great ideas that you see in modern day psychology now, stuff about, you know, breathing, how important breathing is and, you know, how we, uh, store emotion in the body. Like that stuff we, you know, that's on like Instagram memes now, but I think that was pretty revolutionary at the time. Well, no, like that Bessel van der Kolk book. Yeah, been on the it's exactly, that's list. all Reich stuff, right? Yeah. And if you go to a Reich in therapy, some, you do some talking. My dad went to a Reich therapist for my whole life. And he actually, when I was about 12, paid me $20 to go for one appointment. But at the end, the doctor asked for a kiss. And I said, no, you're, that's gross. And I told my dad, I'll never go back. And how, how old were you? 12? I want to say it was like 12, maybe oh younger, God. maybe a older, not that much older, but it was weird. It was weird. My dad was like, he doesn't have kids. He doesn't get it. I was like, no, that's gross. Cut to like five years later where his name was Dale. He helped uh, a woman, like a woman had gotten to a wreck on the side of the freeway and he pulled over to help her and got hit by a car and Oy. he died. Whoa. But I, when I was in my 20s, I went to my dad's new therapist, Roland. They always go by their first name. That's how you know it's like a weird kind of therapy. Um, <laughs> and I was having a lot of anxiety before I got married. I was like in an anxiety spiral. And I went to one appointment. I, I paid. My dad didn't pay <laughs> me to go. I went on my own volition. And it wasn't something that I wanted to do over and over again. But it was definitely helpful. We spent about probably 20 minutes talking. And then the rest of the time was spent doing all these kind of weird physical things like, and Ray does this in the book, he looks at this, he looks, he uses his eyes to look around the room at all the objects until you kind of, your eyes start to really hurt. Um, There's gagging, there's screaming into a pillow. I didn't do this with Roland, but my dad does it. You get tickled by the therapist and the idea is you're releasing all this like pent up energy. Um, So it's a little bit, you know, alternative. Right. Um, And Wilhelm Reich himself you know, he died in prison. The FBI had, you know, I think he died in prison, but the FBI had like taken all of his papers and destroyed them. He thought he could create something called the Cloud Buster, which is a Kate Bush song about him where he could like shoot at the clouds to make rain. I mean, he really went off the deep end at the end, which is a shame because a lot of his ideas, I think, are valid today. Yeah, it's, it's always interesting to me. Maybe especially in this space of like psychology or spirituality is how like the really, how often people who would advance the cause or have some good ideas are kind of wacky. Yeah. And they always take it too far. So it's embarrassing. Yeah. But like yeah. there is good within. So like it's almost tragic because I think sometimes the wackiness can sort of obscure the real value that they brought. But yeah. Uh, there's something that you, and again, this is one of these aspects of your novel that had me Googling because I just didn't have a frame of reference for it, but the orgone accumulator, is yes. that what it's called? Yes. So That, that plays yeah. a role. And it, it feels, I should just say, as an extension of kind of an earlier part of this conversation, it feels this this whole thing, the Wilhelm Reich, the, what kind of therapy is it again? Reichian Reich, therapy? Reichian therapy. Yeah. And the orgone accumulator all feels very much tied to kind of this California mythology. 
it's the sort of shit that happens in California. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Reich is big in Maine. That's where he died. And you can go to his house, apparently, and see all, all his things. But I was interested definitely in kind of like alternate woo-woo modalities because that is, you know, I grew up with friends whose mothers were in past life regression therapy, you know, to explore how they were like a great king in like a thousand years ago and how that affects their present. I have friends who's, it's always somebody's mother, but in my case, it was my father, but you know, somebody's mother had a pet psychic coming to see what was wrong with the dog. I mean, I, that was something that was just, I was used to growing up and it wasn't until I left California that I realized that's kind of a strange milieu to be in. And because my dad is into Reiki and therapy, he doesn't have an accumulator. We tried to find one so I could try it, but we, we, we had no success. I wanted to explore. I always wanted to write about Reich. I thought it was so interesting. And it felt right for this book because it's about people who are trying to escape, trying to feel better, um, trying to get access to something that is not part of the everyday. And it's a California thing. And it it's also illegal, fun. isn't it? Isn't the accumulator, isn't the box that he created? It's it's hard to find, but is it legal to have one? In the past, it had been illegal. Now, I think it's fine. You just I can't say. It's, not, it's like not, it's not FDA approved, but who is, or, who is ordering a box to put together to feel one's energy and they think it's going to be like a <laughs> pill? Know. No. You, you so it's know. not illegal anymore in the same way. Okay. But you get inside this box and it taps into your energy somehow. Yeah. It, it, the, the idea is you get in there and the, the like fiberglass and wood that it's made out of is collecting like life force energy. And so you're kind of depleted of it. You go into the box. You sit on this special, bo- this special block. You can put some kind of like giant looks – like, it looks to me like a giant funnel. And it you like suck it to you and it like brings the energy back into you, your body. Who the fuck I'm, knows? My dad's yeah. license plate, this is on the dedication page, but his vanity license plate is Orgone. And everybody always thinks like, oh, you're from Oregon. <laughs> and I said to him, oh, that means your car is the accumulator. But he didn't even think that. He just wanted other Wilhelm Reichheads to like honk, you know. Well, well if I ever see him around town, I'm definitely you'll, you'll be like, that's Eden's dad. <laughs> he, I, he just gave me back my galley. He was like, it's signed. And I was like, oh, no, I didn't sign it. He's like, no, I signed it. And he had signed <laughs> the dedication page. Good for him. Yeah. <laughs> hey, this is as much his as it is yours, or at least it's part. You. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, I feel like all that stuff, it's making me think of the, what we were talking about with respect to parenthood and doing your best and, you know, inevitably, you know, fucking things up. I think a piece of it that we didn't talk about is context like where you raise your children, mm. like that has a huge impact, doesn't it? I mean, I obviously, ultimately it comes down to parents. So you can raise your kid in like a really rough place, but if you're there for them and you teach them good values or whatever, they're probably going to turn out okay. But the milieu that my kids are growing up in is so much different than the milieu that I grew up in. I wonder what the difference will be. And we're not raising them with religion, which I was raised with. Oh, so, interesting. So those are key differences. And I just wonder how they're going to turn out. I guess we'll find out. We'll find out. <laughs> and also the generational difference, right? That's huge too, the amount of technology that's available, the ideas that are available. I mean, I think about all the time now, my kids slip into different pronoun use very easily. Like there's kids in their classes who go by they, and they just, they use those pronouns very easily. My daughter 
who's now seven, I think like when she was five or six, she asked my little one, what pronouns do you like? Like, what are your pronouns? She's like, Mickey, what are your pronouns? He's not even like two years old. And he's, I'm like, he doesn't know what that is. And she was like, you know, like he or she or they. And his answer was dinosaur. Well, but I just think can, about little, we, very, can accom- we can accommodate that. In yeah, Los right. Angeles. We're very, whatever your identity is, we're going to go for it. But yeah. my point is, is that from a young age, they have just a very different idea of gender than we did, no that doubt. I did even like 10 years ago. And just, that's interesting to me too. Like, what are the, what are the ideas that are shaping them in the place that they're from? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I, I think about my daughter's experience at school, you know, just the multicultural aspect of it. Lots of kids who are out, lots of kids who are trans, lots of kids who have different pronouns. Such a far cry from my Midwestern upbringing where like I got out of high school. I went to high school. I had a graduating class of 700 plus kids, a huge public high school in Indiana. I knew one out gay person. Yeah. One. Of course. That might've been exceptional to even know one. That's for what you, I'm saying. Well, your, I mean, he, I mean, there were some gay kids at my school in LA, but but I mean, growing. I guess that I'll pose it as a question to you. I have to believe going to school in Los Angeles in what the '90s, you you knew more. There were more out kids here than there were in Indiana, right? I'm sure. I mean, there were a few at my school. I also went to a performing arts magnet, so I think there was it was a much freer. Like there were a lot of theater kids. It was a much kind of freer environment where there were a lot not only just gay or straight, they were just like straight up just eccentrics. And that was cool in my school. Um, I also was, went to a very, very diverse public school where, you know, I, I was, I feel like when all the black lives matter stuff hit and there were all this literature, I, I'm not coming at it as I was enlightened because I'm not, or I wasn't, I'm still working on it, et cetera. But I think a lot of white people, we're suddenly thinking about like what it means to be white. And I had had those questions for myself when I went into seventh grade because I suddenly went to a school where white people were the minority. And I had that experience until I graduated from high school where there were just so many races. And if, you know, was it like 30% white and 70% not white is a very different world to grow up in than a high school that's 90% white. And actually going to college was a little bit of a culture shock to go to an experience where there was mostly white people. I was like, what is going on? Why are all these white people dancing? Like, you should not be dancing unless you know how to dance. You look ridiculous, get off the dance floor. But if you are a white person that came from a predominantly white place, you feel free to dance badly. And that was not the case of where I grew up. I'm happy. I'm happy to hear that because I don't feel like I'm. I'm not a dancer. I just have (laughs) accepted that about myself. And And you sat on the sidelines. Well, no, but then it's like you're 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 not fun. You don't dance. There's something you're inhibited. You're not free. I'm like, no, I fucking suck at dancing, and I'm not going to do it because I'm not good at it. I don't have to. I do like when people (laughs) dance and dance badly and are having a good time. I I I feel like it's sweet. But similarly, like, I won't sing in public because I'm a bad singer. And people who break out into song, I'm like, stop singing. But I'm a good dancer. I worked for that space on the dance floor. Yeah. But I just remember being at Oberlin and being like, I don't think I've seen so many white people dancing at the same time. And, of course, dancing badly. <laughs> well, see, I think that's I'm, – I'm envious of that part of your upbringing. And, and that's a huge part of your education. That's what I mean by context. You know, it's not just like the school, though the school is a part of it. But my kids, I'm like very happy about the fact that my kids are exposed to a lot. 
and not so good stuff. You know, it's not so great all the time either. They see yeah. a lot. You when you raise a kid in a city, versus in one of the little sort of like, what do you call them? Like sanitized suburbs of my midwestern youth. You you know, I was a lot more closed off from the world, like so many aspects of the world. You know, you're sort of insulated from it all. Yeah. And that has its that has its upsides, you know. It's nice in some ways to just have an innocent childhood, but I don't know. I sort of like the idea of them just being roughed up from the start. <laughs> <laughs> this is the world. Get this, used to it, kid. This is it. This yeah. is it. it. It contains all of this, you know, because you, you also, that's the thing about California and the cities in California in particular is that there's so much like overwhelming beauty to this state and to these places. So it's it's like this crazy mix, right? It's like this mix of like astonishing beauty and filth and like like just like depressing human suffering that you know you can't even begin to wrap your head around. Like it's all here kind of all the time and it's a lot to process. Yeah, and I think for me that's why it's such a great place for fiction writing. I mean, I believe that any place is interesting for fiction writing. Whenever I have a student say, "Oh, I'm I'm from somewhere that's not interesting." I'm like, "There's no place in the world that's not interesting. Every right. particular upbringing, every house in America has something fascinating and special and weird about it." But California in particular has all these contradictions that I think fictively make for this interesting texture and tension that I just love to investigate. I love it here. You know, I hope I get to stay. You know, well, so far, so good. I hope <laughs> You're going to get me. kicked out to Texas. <laughs> I was going to say, at, well, at some point, the people who are native, who grew up here, like you, will, you know, convene. I think there's a, a special council or something. I'll put on my robe. <laughs> yeah, right. We have evicted Brad. But no, it's a, it's a lovely place. And... Uh, I have a lot of affection for it. And I like, too, the fact, I've, I've said this often in my life and on this show, that I like the fact that Los Angeles and San Francisco and maybe entire swaths of the state, you know, accommodate the kind of spiritual searching and psycho-spiritual exploration that your dad has been involved in for years. Like, I find that charming. I don't find that to be a negative at all because I like that spirit of experimentation. I, I think it in contrast to maybe my spiritual upbringing, which had a lot more certainty attached to it. Like this is the way, mm -hmm. right? I was Catholic and it's like, this is the way. And I was always like, I'm not sure. I don't feel it. I don't feel certain <laughs> like from the time I was young. And so to be in a place where everybody's just sort of trying stuff on and I don't know. Let's give let's give the orgone accumulator a shot. Let's see how we feel afterwards. I mean, I think yeah. I like I don't believe most of it and I'm not a searcher, but I agree having searching being like baked into the practice is what makes it beneficial and doesn't seem scary. Of course, certain kinds of woo-woo stuff have caused problems like don't get me started on the anti-vax movement, etc. Right. But, you know, I also am someone who I'm not a spiritual person, but I did have two home births. So there's definitely a part of me that's like, hey, let's get away outside of the institutions and see what we can create outside. You know, like there is that part of me and I wonder, is it just because I'm from California? Maybe. Maybe you would have more of a predisposition for it or less resistance to it because it's more normalized. I mean, like you said, you were at people's houses and their pets were getting <laughs> psychic uh, evaluations. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But... I think it's interesting to me that you're not a searcher 
Like you're an atheist. You're just sort of like, you're just like, fuck it. I don't know. I don't know. And it's like, I don't know. And I don't really care. It's, I don't know what, what piece it would bring me to understand that. And I think I'm just really interested in people. That's what I'm interested in. And that's not to say that I can't be in nature and to go back to trees, be like if you, there's no really way that you could stand next to a redwood or even a live oak, a California live oak tree and not be like this majesty, where did it come from? Like I'm feeling something beautiful. Like I'm interested in that. But beyond that, I'm just sort of okay not knowing and being much more interested in thinking about like, why why did we why do we say that when we feel like this? Why does the body feel like this when this happens? You know, why does aging feel this way? Why do we talk to each other this way? I just much more interested in like everyday humanness than I don't care about God. Yeah. No, I get that. Like the here and now and like the the actual lived experience of being a human in California. (laughs) And I think because I was raised in a secular environment, like my mom is Jewish, as has been established, you know, what really became sacred to me, honestly, were books. I don't want to sound cheesy, but like if if I need a model for how to live, I read novels. And that's how I kind of figure out, you know, Zadie Smith calls it hypothetical ethical arenas. So you know, I enter those hypothetical ethical arenas and I think about what I would do and how I feel about it. And that like points my way, I guess. What were some of like, what were some formative books for you? Like as a teenager, college? (laughs) Yeah, let's see. Well, as a really, I was been thinking about this because as a young child, I was very much into Judy Bloom. As Um, was I. And so I think like that character driven realism was really important to me. And the same with um, Ellen Montgomery and, and the, all of the Anna Green Gables books, all of those books, just deep character work in those books. Um, you know, and then in high school, I was super into Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton and t- Tom Robbins. I loved Tom uh-huh. Robbins. Yeah. Yeah, you could see it like a little bit like voicey, a little wild and funny. And then college was definitely like the... Lori Moore, Margaret Atwood years, and aside from, you know, post-structuralists and Judith Butler and, you know, The Scarlet Letter, I loved. Oh, and I loved Don DeLillo in college. Underworld, mm-hmm. I read like seven times. I love Underworld. It's such a good book. Yeah. It is interesting. You mentioned Tom Robbins. He's such a specific case to me because he is like wildly popular, but tends to be wildly popular with people only in a narrow channel of their life. Like you could read Underworld when you're 24 or when you're 54. Yeah. But like Tom Robbins, it's like you're probably stoned in your dorm room or like, you know. You're it's young. Summer. Why? You're young. But he's not young anymore. No, he's like almost 100. I mean, yeah. he's so old. <laughs> I haven't read a Tom Robbins book for, I mean, I read Half Asleep in Frog Pajamas in high school which was part of a project I did. But that was his new book, I think, when I read that. And I don't think I've read anything since then. Has he been publishing? Yeah, there was like a memoir and then there was like some Tibetan thing. Yeah, but I lost track, you know. But I remember after college being on the Appalachian Trail and longtime listeners of this show are either clapping or rolling their eyes that I'm, <laughs> I'm mentioning the Appalachian Trail yet again. Yet but again. I was in my tent and I remember reading Another Roadside Attraction. Mm-hmm. That was a book I brought with me, like with my beard and my dog and, you know, the whole thing. But yeah, I don't know. I think that's very, that's very fascinating to me just that he would resonate with people at a specific time in their youth or in their youth. And then also that he would have such like a robust 
like I think he's made a fortune, right? I mean, he's yeah, done really well, but you can do really well only reaching people when they're like 16 to 22. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I would like to reread the books because unlike Judy Bloom, those whose books were written for children, the Tom Robbins books are adult books and yet they appeal to someone at the beginning of their life. And I wonder, is it like the freewheeling quality? Is it the reliance on certain cliches that are not are not yet shop worn. I don't know. I would be. I should reread one of them now and see if I like throw it across the room or if I love it as I always did. I I almost wonder too because there is a freewheeling quality to your book. Oh, that I. It's know all because of Tom. But I'm. But listen, you might. I think the question I'm. I would ask is like maybe when you reread a Tom Robbins novel, maybe you'll be like, oh, some of this got into me in ways I didn't realize. You know what I'm saying? Because I feel like Time's Mouth is. It's a, like we said at the beginning, it's a, it's a heavy lift, you know, you're, you're taking us through, you know, entire like eras in Californian history and dealing with multiple characters and having to write supernatural stuff, which requires you to kind of create a set of rules for, that you don't normally have to create. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like it's a, it's a lot going on and maybe the sense of play that I think his work embodies so well was working within you too. You're probably right. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I'll look at writing I did like in high school and the it's it's me. Like I I hope I got better, but like the rhythm is pretty similar. My imagistic qualities are the same. So, you know, if the writing isn't all that changed, probably you know, he's got something to do with it. Yeah, those influences are gonna be there. And it's it's funny too. Like I think about this a lot, like does anybody ever really change all that much? I know certain behaviors can change. Like people can make major behavioral changes in their lives. But is the essence of anybody ever really like dramatically altered? I feel like people are so, it's sort of baked in. That's what I feel like. Do you think that's why it's so hard to be around your parents when you're an adult? Because you believe yourself to have been to have changed, like you've been you've been through so much, you've had all these experiences, you maybe have done work to change behaviors, and yet when you see your parents, they're treating you, they've known you since day one, and they're treating you almost like an older version of yourself, and you're kind of bristling against that. But the truth of the matter is that you are mostly the same. Is this the source of the fight on Christmas Day? Is this it? The source of the fight on Christmas Day. <laughs> it wasn't, but was it? Yeah, who knows? I it mean, was about I think dinner that got really late. Yeah, I mean, who? It, the, who knows? Convi- but was it really about dinner? No. <laughs> right. Well, I think that they say, like, if you think that you're spiritually enlightened, like, go home for a day, you know, and spend time with your family. And I think that it's, it, this is not to say that like families are inherently problematic, but it's just really hard to sort of like keep up a, like to kind of pull any kind of hustle on your family, right? You've got to deal with all that sort of raw knowledge of one another. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's hard to hide, I guess is the yeah, point, or it's hard to keep true. up a, a ruse. Um, so I think you're onto something. I think it's different for different families. You know, I think you're, you're lucky to have, like you say, good parents. I have good parents. It's relatively easy for me to be around them, but you get the whole family together. Yeah. It's any family, you get them together. It's always going to be a little bit combustible because your family, you know, each other so well. And you didn't choose each other. When I teach world building to my undergraduates at Caltech, I talk about it. Like when you have a new part boyfriend or girlfriend, 
and you go to their childhood home, you are in the act of world building moment by moment where you're like, oh, okay, so these are the kind of people who like brush their teeth at the kitchen sink. Okay, these are the kind of people who this is, they never talk about Bruno. Okay, these are the kind of people who make comments about your body at the table. And you are kind of creating this fuller dossier on the person that you thought you knew really well. You know them well enough that you're meeting their parents. Um, and it suddenly expands the dossier by like an exponent of 10. Yeah. Um, but you're creating this world. It's similar to what reading almost like Lord of the Rings. You have all of these new facts that you have to absorb into the universe because um, there's just so much more to learn. You know, as I'm listening to you talk and I'm thinking about your kind of orientation to the world and how you're kind of a people first person and you're not as concerned with like the the mystical or the spiritual you know, having such a close connection with your father who has such a close connection with like a Western psychotherapeutic model and having him, I would imagine, be languaging psychotherapeutic talk around the house in the way that he spoke with you. I feel like that sort of, I love when I can kind of like maybe start to piece together like how a writer is formed. Is formed. And your sensibility is formed. Am I, you think I'm barking up the right tree? I would say yes and no, except that my dad, if you're into Reich, you're not into that kind of Talky therapy thing. talk. So he doesn't have that speech. But what he does have is a kind of freedom to feel because that's what Reich really is about. And that's also from like hippie stuff and into being into Timothy Leary and stuff. So I was kind of raised with a feeling of like, whatever you're thinking is fine. Whatever you're feeling is okay. Which I think is really, I hope to bring that to my own children because I think it really is what helped me become a mentally healthy person who could be in a loving relationship and be a writer. Um, but yeah, he's not necessarily good at talking, <laughs> which not. is why we had the fight at Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll just table that fight. We'll let that lie. So last thing I want to kind of get into with you is doing the work itself. I mean, I know this book took a few years. It seems normal to me. I don't think there's anything particularly crazy about seven years for a long novel, but you have three children. Mm -hmm. You teach at Caltech, mm -hmm. right? I teach one quarter a year at Caltech. Okay, but still, yeah. you got a lot yeah, going I on. Teach. Yeah, I got you a got a lot going on. on. Like parenthood alone is going to be eating up a lot of anyone's time. And I know there are probably listeners who struggle with this, whether it's because of their work-life balance related to parenthood or just like work-life balance related to work. But you just talk a little bit about how you manage to get the work done. Sure. Um, one, I am in a relationship that is equal in that I have a partner who does an equal amount of domestic tasks and parenting tasks. So I think that's really important, especially not always, but typically the mother, if you're in a hetero relationship, the mother is doing more of the domestic and the invisible emotional labor. That's not the case in my house. So I feel like having a partner who is not useless is the first thing you need if you want to have kids and write <laughs> um, or have enough money to outsource it to some degree. I also have always made it a priority. Even before I published anything, I was like, I'm a writer. I'm going to create my life to be a writing life. So that meant in the past, it meant you know, being an SAT tutor, working at a bookstore, working at a cheese store and having hours that allowed me to work and didn't take, wasn't too taxing. I didn't have a writing job so that when I was writing, I was using my best brain. I tried to do it first 
on my task sheet. I write it down that I'm going to do it. I try to tell like my husband that I'm going to do it so that I can be held accountable. I have something I call the writing log on my computer. It's just a Microsoft Word document that's like a journal about what I'm going to be working on. So before I start writing, I just kind of blabber to it like this is what I want to work on. A lot of times there's a lot of like dread and anxiety that's about the thing I have to start because I'm just scared. I'm not going to do it right. I just let it all out. I'm very specific about my goals. At the end of a writing session, I go back to the log and I kind of like do a postmortem and then I write what I plan to happen next. This feels kind of Reikian. Is there any? I go into the orgone accumulator and I let <laughs> I the vibes just. <laughs> just screaming into a pillow, you know? I mean. Exactly. But I just, I mean, it's pretty basic like chip away at the work make it a priority, don't clean the house instead of working, don't go to the grocery store instead of working. Because I'm a mother, there's pretty punishing constrictions, is that the word? Restrictions, constraints, thank you, that's the word I'm looking for, constraints on my time. So until, my youngest is about to go to TK, but before that, he only went to school four days a week. So I had four days a week to work, and I do pick up, so it was like eight 8 a.m. to 2 was my only time to do anything I wanted to do. So I'd be like, okay, I have three hours today. I'm going to do it. Turn off the internet, write my writing log, and do it. And try to tell someone you're going to do it, you know, to make sure it actually happens. That's, I mean, I think those kinds of restraints can be useful. I mean, they can be punishing or whatever, but they're also helpful because it's yeah, like, this is Yeah, because you don't this stick around. Right. Yeah. And I also go away. I go to a place called Dorland, which is in Temecula, California. You have to pay to go. But basically, the application process is very minimal. If they have a cottage available and you can prove that you're not insane, they'll take you. And you have, you know, it's like $600 for a one-bedroom little house for the week. So it's not free, but it's a lot cheaper than getting an Airbnb. And I'll go there with a friend. We'll each get a cottage. Every night we'll meet and make dinner together and talk about our work. I've also gone to the Santa Barbara County with other friends. I just got back from Wyoming at U-Cross, which is a residency that pays. They actually pay you $1,000 to go and serve you food and treat you like royalty. It's really a gift. But I do that a couple times a year and do like, you know, live, live kind of like a troll for a week just writing all the time. Writing and doing like self-indulgent things like reading poetry and crying, listening to music outside. <laughs> like the number of ridiculous things I've done at a writing retreat that I just don't have time for is staggering. But then I get like, you know, 30 pages in a week because I'm just writing so much. So those are also really helpful, just like removing myself from my day-to-day life for a short amount of time. So is there anything else in the works now that this book is coming out? Are you a person who's sort of like chain smokes and you've got another thing cooking or are you just taking a breath? A little bit of both. I Because I went to U-Cross, the retreat in Wyoming, I, was, I went there in, I think it was late March, early April. Now I don't even remember. But I went there and I had already, you know, Time's Mouth was coming out. I didn't have a new book. If I hadn't gone, I don't know if I would have started something. But I had two weeks, so I wrote 40 pages of something. Um, I like to have something waiting for me when a book comes out. So I had Time's Mouth waiting for me when Woman Number 17 came out. Woman Number 17 was waiting for me when California came out. So now I have this untitled mess waiting for me when I eventually go back to it. I haven't, I don't, I let myself not write, you know, in the couple months leading up to publication because 
you know, publicity is such a weird, it's just so different from writing. And it's you're a different in this energy. Like external mode and it's just not good for writing. You don't want the outside world in your mind when you're writing. And the outside world is so in your mind when you're about to publish a book. So once I'm out of this like book psychosis, <laughs> I will go back to that project and hopefully it will want to be a book. Is it another California book? Of course. It's Cal- okay. I, I, the only, I, it's, it's so nascent that I all I think I will say about it is it's about a mother in California with an interesting job. All right. And it's well, realistic. There's no fucking time travel. Well, I will look forward to it, and I want to congratulate you on seeing, you. seeing this new novel, Time's Mouth, like through, like going on the full getting the full experience, right? It's like there have got to be so many, there are always so many moments in the writing of a novel where you have kind of little like dark nights of the soul or crises or is it all for naught? And I think with a big project like this and one that incorporates the supernatural and time travel and things that you haven't done before, right? This is all new to you. Uh, I have to believe there was some of that and yet you persevered. So kudos to you and best of luck on whatever comes next. Thank you, Brad. It was really a pleasure to talk to you today. All right, you guys, there we go. That was my conversation with Eden Lepucky, author of the new novel, Time's Mouth, available from Counterpoint Press. You can find Eden on the internet at edenlepucky.com. She is on social media. I believe she's on Instagram. One more time, the book is called Time's Mouth. It is a great summer read. It is a book to read if you want to get into that California headspace. Hippies, witches, forests, the desert, Los Angeles, hedonism, new age, spirituality, human suffering. This is it. So get a copy of Time's Mouth wherever books are sold. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. And if you would like to get an Other People t-shirt, you can do that at otherppl.com. Just scroll down, look for the t-shirt. You can't miss it. If you want to sign up for my free once-a-week email newsletter, you can do so at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. And if you have a couple of minutes, I would deeply appreciate it if you would give this podcast a rating wherever you listen. If it's possible to, uh, to write a review, write a quick review. It helps the show in the algorithm. If you would like to write to me, if you have feedback about the show or you want to tell me a story, whatever it is, you can email the program. The, uh, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Finally, I have a novel out. My latest novel is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Got to give it a quick plug. It is available right now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So if you would like to check out my novel, again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So coming up on Wednesday on The Other People Show, I will be in conversation with Jamel Brinkley, author of the acclaimed story collection entitled Witness. It is just out on Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, and it is getting rave reviews. I had an excellent conversation with Jamel Brinkley. Uh, 
that is coming up in just a couple of days. So stay tuned.